We are continuing our journey on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I was asked this last week why we're spending so much time on history. And of course, there's the old adage, those who do not know their history are what? Doomed to repeat it. And so we're not only celebrating a significant milestone in the life of the church, we're also trying to learn from the history of the church in order to be able to honor God. And as we walk through this journey of 500 years, we're using four of the major kind of catchphrases of the Reformation, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, and Christ alone. As we go on this journey, we're walking alongside the life of Martin Luther. And last week, we talked about how in Martin Luther's life, there was this terrible storm Was he was a firstborn child, lots of expectations, lots of high potential. He was deadly afraid in that moment. He prayed to God that if God would save him, that he would become a monk, which he was spared from that storm. He ended up enrolling in the monastery. And in doing so, he realized that even with his incredible religious devotion, that the anxiety, the angst of life never subsided. He went on a significant journey and trip all the way from Erfurt all the way down to the great city of Rome. And while he was down there, he was amazed by the corruption of what had taken place in the faith. He climbed in penance all the way up the steps and got to the top of one of those great spiritual pilgrimages in Rome. And when he got to the top, he questioned, what if it's not true? He returned all the way back to Erfurt and to Germany, eventually settling into Wittenberg where he had his incredible breakthrough moment. In this breakthrough moment, he discovered in Romans chapter 1 that the righteousness of God was not about God trying to punish us, but, but God trying to restore us. And so we discovered last week one of those amazing phrases of the Reformation that we are saved by grace through faith. And last week we talked about faith. We talked about how faith is trust. It is a firm and certain confidence in God's goodness, God's benevolence towards us. And today we're going to talk about the grace side of that equation, grace alone. Well, when we talk about the celebration of that hallmark moment, the pivotal moment that describes the moment of the beginning of the Reformation, the nailing of the 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, we have to ask ourselves, why did Luther do this? We're called Protestants. What are we protesting against? What was wrong? What was going on back then in order for us to understand why this was such a big deal? And so today I need to explain to you a couple things about medieval Christianity and for you to understand what Martin Luther did. We're going to talk about saintly relics. We're going to talk about private masses, and we're going to talk about papal indulgences. Aren't you excited? Aren't you thrilled? Isn't this what you got up this morning? You're so, there's a reason we're doing this message the day that you got an extra hour of sleep. That there's a reason that we're doing this. I actually think you're going to have a little fun with this as well. Let's first talk about saintly relics, these incredible items that people were absolutely obsessed with during the time of Martin Luther. It was Martin Luther's kind of benefactor and kind of head region of the whole area, and his name was Frederick the Wise. And Frederick the Wise, by the time we get to 1520, had cataloged over 19,000 relics 
that people could venerate. Many of these relics that were found back in those medieval moments were these, doubting Thomas's pointer finger, the thorns from the very crown of Christ, tuned wine jugs from the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine, two vials of breast milk from the mother Mary. It's best not to think about that one too much. <laughs> Branches from the burning bush, which obviously weren't burnt. Actual manna from Moses' sojourn in the wilderness, the very manna that was supposed to not last for longer than a day. And I love this one, a small pinch of dirt from the exact soil from which Adam was created. Well, if it was the exact soil from which Adam was created, how come it's not Adam any longer? There were all of these different relics and people were absolutely gaga over getting to see, be near, and experience. Now, let's not talk about the veracity or the truth of these particular relics. I want to talk about what was behind this obsession with relics. There's a phrase that was known as the treasury of merit. And what they believed was that grace was basically a substance and that the saints were so good that they built up kind of like a heavenly bank account that you and I could make withdrawals from that you and I could tap into, that, that grace was this substance that you could actually hold and kind of take into your life and mine. Well, we believe that Luther nailed the 95 theses or disputations on the door of the Wittenberg Church on October 31st, 1517. Why do we believe this? Some scholars dispute it. We believe it for two reasons. One, the greatest scholar of that generation, a guy by the name of Philip Melanchthon, he, that's when he says it took place. The second reason that we believe it and that we know that this to be true is, seems likely is that October 31st every year is what? It's Halloween, or also known as All Hallows' Eve, because the very next day is known to be All Saints' Day. Now, the church was the place where they would take all the relics on All Saints' Day, and they would set them out throughout the church, and for the right price, you could enter into the church, and you could experience these relics for your own. It was the greatest fundraising day of the church. And so imagine that Luther is taking his disruptive arguments and posting them to the door of the church the very night before they were about to engage in all of the laying out of all of the relics back then. Do you think that that was kind of a disruptive thing to do? What we learn through this is that there was an issue with their understanding of grace back then in that you actually can't collect grace. You can't store up grace. You can't squirrel away grace. You can't put it away for future use. The second thing in medieval Christianity that you need to know with the 95 Theses is that there were lots and lots of private masses. Now, here at Peachtree, we celebrate communion about once a month. Wittenberg, during the life of Martin Luther, was a small town that was getting bigger, but there were only a couple of thousand people there. I want you to kind of turn to somebody next to you and guess how many times did they celebrate the Mass, did they celebrate communion in the year 1517? Turn to somebody next to you and guess about how many times they did this.
We actually have the historical records on this. They celebrated the Mass 9,000 plus times in the year 1517. That's a lot of communion services. There was basically an ongoing cycle of priests performing the Mass in one of the areas of the castle church that was over there. And most of these Masses were not attended by the Masses. They were an individual kind of private kind of ceremony. A lot of the times, for most of them, the only one who was there was the priest. And most of these masses took place because somebody had paid someone in order to perform that mass on their behalf. And even if you had paid for a mass to take place, you weren't actually often there. You just paid someone to do it on your own. Let me see if I can illustrate this with a more modern example to get at what Luther was upset about in this. Let's say my wife and I set up a date night. And let's say, like a typical Atlanta family, our lives are so busy that we can't actually leave from the same location, but that we're actually going to meet at the restaurant. So we're going to be coming in two different cars from two different directions. And so I make a reservation at the restaurant. My wife gets there um, for the reservation. She checks in. She sits at the table. And while she's sitting at the table, one of my good friends walks in comes over to her, sits down at the table and, and says, you know, Rich is really sorry that he couldn't be here in person, um, but he thought that I would kind of stand in for him at this moment in time. How well do you think that's going to go over with my wife? Actually, it depends on the friend. It might go over quite well. But I'm hoping it doesn't go over very well in that moment because there's certain things that you can't outsource, right? There's certain things that you can't delegate out to someone else. A relationship with God is like that. You can't outsource your relationship with God to a priest or to someone else. There's something that you need to be engaged in directly. And so we learn from the saintly relics in that practice then that you can't collect grace. We learn from the private masses practice of what was going on in medieval Christianity that you can't delegate grace. And let's talk about papal indulgences, these things that the Pope could do in order to grant you lesser time in purgatory, which was that meeting place between heaven and hell. Here's a picture of an indulgence from 1498. Um, this was a piece of paper that was given with a seal that you could receive that if you gave a certain amount of money, you could receive a lessened kind of sentence in purgatory for the waiting period of your sin. Your original sin is washed away. You're not going to go to hell, but you have to have your other sins kind of waited for and paid for in purgatory before you get to go to heaven. You can shrink the amount of time that you or a loved one would spend in purgatory if you were able to tap into this treasury of merit that the Pope had access to, to be able to give to you for you giving a good deed in the form of money to the church. Does that sound like a really effective fundraising tactic or what? Well, here's a picture I want to show you of my wife who is uh, putting a coin in one of the coffers in Germany that they have here. This is the kind of money that you would put into one of those uh, cases in order to receive your indulgence. And it was Johann Tetzel who was famous for saying, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Isn't that a great campaign slogan? I mean, it's got all the catchiness that you could ever 
want. One of my favorite stories about Johann Tetzel, who was kind of like the used car salesman of indulgences during the lifetime of Luther. He was really good at his job. One time somebody came up to him and, and asked him if he could buy an indulgence for something that he hadn't done yet. And Tetzel was like, oh, absolutely not. How much money do you have? <laughs> and when they negotiated the right price, Tetzel was willing to give him an indulgence for a sin that he had yet to commit. Well, I think it was either the next day or one of the next couple of days that Tetzel was traveling from one town to another when a group of people jumped him and beat him up and robbed him. And the guy who had robbed him and beat him up revealed himself to be the guy who had asked for an indulgence for something that he hadn't done yet. Now, we don't condone violence in the church, but that's really funny. <laughs> but the point is that you can't purchase grace. You can't buy grace, just as you can't collect grace and store it up, and you can't delegate grace to have someone get it for you, you also can't purchase grace. Which leads us to today's scripture where in Ephesians chapter 2 it says this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. There's that phrase. And it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift. John Ortberg tells the true story of uh, a kid by the name of John Gilbert who had a rare form of muscular dystrophy called Duquesne's disease. And with that disease, you lose a different ability over time. There was the moment where the boy could no longer run. And then there was the moment where the boy could no longer walk. And then there was the moment where the boy was confined to a wheelchair and wasn't in full control of his arms or eventually not able to speak or to eat, confined by his own body. In the moment where John Ortberg encountered this boy, they were at a fundraising gala, kind of a charity auction together. And the boy was in a wheelchair and there was this one particular item. It was a basketball signed by John Gilbert's favorite NBA basketball team. And as soon as that item was up for bid, John Gilbert, the little boy in the wheelchair, I mean, his hands started flailing up in the air. And his mother, with like ninja kind of skills, was like, <laughs> and got his arms back down because no way could she afford this ball. And the bidding kept going up higher and higher and higher. Eventually, there was a guy from another part of the room who threw out a bid that was way beyond the value of the ball or what anybody else was willing to pay for it. And there was that hushed kind of silence where everybody doesn't want to move because nobody wants to be accidentally thought to be bidding the one step higher. They counted down. The gavel slammed down. And the man said, sold. And the guy got up from his seat and he came over and he picked up the basketball, but instead of returning back to his seat, he turned over to where the boy in the wheelchair was. And he placed it in the hands of a boy who would never dribble it down the court, who would never shoot a free throw, but those hands that would cherish that ball for the remainder of his days. John Ortberg writes it this way. 
It took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remembered hearing gasps all around the room, then thunderous applause and weeping eyes. To this day, I'm amazed. Have you ever been given a gift that you could never have gotten for yourself? Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return? You and I have been given this gift and what God has done for us. And we can't do anything to earn it. All we can do in our own human frailty is to receive. And there's one other thing I don't want you to miss about this passage. The other thing I don't want you to miss is that it says that this is a gift of God. And I want you to notice that it doesn't say the gift from God. It says the gift of God. Because God himself is the gift. Veterans Day is coming up this week, and if your inbox, your email is anything like mine, you get lots of reminders and kind of tributes to those who stand in harm's way and those who are willing to make sure that our country has the freedom that we so take for granted but enjoy. One of the emails that I received had a link for an email, uh, kind of a video I want to show and I want to put up here on the screen. It's a series of videos that are compiled together of children who are surprised by their parents being home. And you have to have kind of a pretty calcified heart to not be moved by these encounters of reunion, these moments where in unsuspecting surprise, the children are reunited with their parents who serve and protect a long way away. I want you to notice the face of this one boy when he sees his dad. You ever seen a face like that for somebody who just opens a really expensive present under a tree? No. Faces like that one. The joy behind this only comes from the ultimate gift. That the greatest gifts in the world are the gifts that are in the flesh. The gifts that are in person. Jesus said, as we come to the table, this is my body, which is for you. And you know, for a lot of history, we have argued, even fought over what Jesus meant by that. I want to cut through the clutter and say that, yeah, there's a lot that we don't know, but here's what we do know. When Jesus says, this is my body, he's saying for sure, I'm here. I'm right here, and I'm with you. It's the gift of God. Grace is not a substance. Grace is a person. He's here 
in the flesh. And what we mean by that is the real spiritual presence of Christ is with us. You can't buy this gift. You can't outsource this gift. You can't delegate it. And you can't collect it. All you can do is receive it. It's mysterious. It's hard to believe at times. But what grace means is that grace is here, that where two or three are gathered, that he's right there with you. And so, Heavenly Father, as we share this in your feast today, as we come to this table, we're reminded that you're the one who hosts this table, that you're the one who's present that you're the one who calls us, that you're the one who redeems us. We thank you for your grace, God. And so often in history, we have gotten your grace all wrong. Thank you that you have purchased this grace for us, that you've placed it in our lives, and that the gift is inseparable from the giver. And so God, nourish us at this table. May we be transformed by the real presence of the living God in the power of the Holy Spirit here in this place. And as we anticipate these things, we offer the prayer that you taught your followers in every time and age to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. On the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after the supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink of it, you do so. Remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the dying and the rising of the Lord until he comes again in power and in glory. As we take communion today, we'll be at a variety of stations around the sanctuary. The ushers will help you to make sure that you know which direction you're going and, um, and when it's the time for you to do so. In general, you're going to come down by the aisle that's closest to the center of the sanctuary, and you're going to return by the side aisle um, of your particular section. Dear friends, these are the gifts of God. They are for the people of God. Will the servers come? The table is now ready.